The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Well, hey, before I jump into Philippians 2 here in a few moments as we're in a series called Reclaiming Relationships, a couple things I want to uh, mention. First of all, uh, this last week we got a letter in the mail from the city of Marysville, and it says this, I'm delighted to let you know that the Grove Church will be honored with the Community Champion Award at the Marysville Business Summit on Tuesday, April 25th at the Opera House. I invite you to be the city's guest for the award ceremony. Um, please join us to receive this recognition of the Grove Church's demonstrated faith in action and commitment to the Marysville community through multiple public service events and programs. And so that's some good mail. Uh, yeah. It's fun to have the kind of partnerships that we do. And I know we talk about, in fact, with Fight Hunger, our partnership with the Marysville Community Food Bank that, you know, do something like the neighborhood, uh, tutoring, iHeart coming up in July, just different ways that we want to continue to build bridges into the community that we care deeply about. And oftentimes, as we're meeting as a staff and talking about ministry and how we do what we do, one of the things we talk about is, is the question, like, if the church were to disappear from the community today, would the community even notice? And we really want that answer always to be a resounding yes, not that we're looking to disappear, but that we want to continue to invest and make a huge difference in our community. So it's awesome to see what's going on. Also, I mentioned I wanted to give you an update today with some detail about where we're at with uh, the building project, legacy campaign, kind of that stuff, because we do have some information to give you and, and ways that I want to ask you to pray. So let me jump in with this. I, I said before that we received bids back for the building and they came in a lot higher than we anticipated. And of course, there you're like, oh, great, you know, what now? And so I appreciate a ton, Ryan Lawfer, who's been kind of our, our key staff staff member taking on the project and, and working through the details of it, along with Pete Lasick, and he's been doing a great job but with us to look at the scope, look at the details, and really the question of like, what do we do now that the, the, the price tag is higher and how do we move the cost down? You know, what does it look like? And where we've basically landed is this, where we're cutting the scope of the project. And this is what originally was some of the conversation is, is kind of doing the whole thing. And well, what about phases? So instead of doing the whole thing, what we'll do is we'll build the auditorium to create the seats that we need. As you can see, it gets pretty crowded and we're trying to create space, empty seats during optimal time. So build the auditorium, which then requires from the city that we do all of the exterior parking and all that stuff. But to do that and to wait on the lobby. And um, looking at the cost and looking at value engineering and trying to figure out, you know, how to do this, um, that's kind of where we're at, that we'll wait on the lobby. But it still means that as we move towards the project beginning, which we've said, again, this is a bunch of info, that we need to begin in the summer months to take advantage of the weather because if the weather changes and there's a lot of you know rain and it gets muddy, it means a lot more excavating of dirt and then bringing in to the tune of hundreds of thousands more dollars. So we want to begin during the summer and yet here we are going, well, gosh, you know, how do we figure out all of the moving pieces and, and, and make this work? At the end of the day, to cut out the lobby and do the rest of it, you know, to phase it, to cut out the lobby, do the rest of it, and to begin the work this summer, there's a difference of about $650,000 that we don't have that we need. And so you, know, you might hear that and go, man, that's, that's a big deal. How do we get there? What do we do? And the truth is because we are on a seasonal timeline, you know, there's not months and months and months and even years, but how do we figure this out now? And, and so as we're looking at it, what we don't want to do or, or what we're challenged with is this, 
to put the project off and go, you know what, let's just pause, wait till the next summer season, you know, just over a year from now. And, and hopefully, you know, with the legacy campaign going and people making pledges and giving towards that, the money builds up and that's good. The challenges that we run into are this. One, if costs do go up in construction, we're actually not getting ahead by setting aside that money. We're actually getting behind. And that's kind of what happened because we weren't able to begin last year, this, this last 12 months, in, you know, the prices of, of, you know, all of the stuff went up significantly. And like I said, we find ourselves with a bit of a sticker shock to figure it out. The second part is we locked in our loan last April at four and a quarter percent, which is great. But if we continue to wait to draw on that loan, the concern there is there's a point where the bank comes back and says, you're not using it. We're going to call it and you can refile and get a new loan down the road. The problem there obviously is the interest rate would be significantly higher and that's a challenge. So here we are going, what do we do? And, and as a board, we're talking and praying about this and walking through the pieces of it going, all right, here's what it's going to take. $650,000 is, is a steep hill to climb. At the same time, we serve a big God. And I don't want to just simply go, oh, no big deal. We just serve a big God, whatever. But here's what I'm asking. This is not a burden that I want to carry alone, nor should I carry alone. And I'm saying this, we use language at the Grove Church all the time, including it takes all of us for we to win. And I want to challenge all of us to consider what does it look to prayerfully go, okay, God, how are we going to get there? And what is the part that I play? For those of you that have already made pledges towards a legacy campaign, that's awesome. I appreciate that immensely. If you're able to give that amount sooner than later, that helps us. If you're one of those that's yet to make a pledge or yet to step up and, and do something, I want to challenge you to do that because it is doable. When you think about the about 1,000 people that we have on any given Sunday, if all 1,000 people gave $650 over the next month, we're there. So on one hand, you look at it that way, you go, okay, well, wait a minute. What if it's half that? You know, 500 people, obviously, the difference is you go $1,300. It's a lot more doable when, when you think about all of us being a part of it. But I'm asking you to pray about what we together could do. I'm asking you to invite the Holy Spirit to challenge all of us, including yourself, Lord, what should I be doing along this journey? Because we're saying May 21st is Miracle Sunday. We need God to do the loaves and fish. We need God to multiply that we can move forward and, and accomplish what we need to. But we have a window of time that if we wait too long, we have to hit the pause button for, you know, nine, 10 more months. And so pray with me. Carry the burden with me. I'm not looking for you to lose sleep over this, but I will tell you that there's plenty of nights that I've laid awake going, man, Lord, I don't see it. I don't get it. And I'm just being completely honest. And I know for those of you that are guests and stuff, it's all oh, they talk about money in the church world. I get it. Maybe you can head to the lobby, grab some coffee, come back in another minute or two. Um, that's fine because I get it. I mean, church world, people get funny about it. Nevertheless, I'm just letting you know, here's where we're at. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Prayerfully ask God about what, what can happen as far as miracles that we need, as well as Lord, what is my role in this? And I'm not gonna make you cry or do whatever and twist your arm or manipulate anything. I'm simply saying, hey, when we look at the community, when we want to create empty seats during optimal times, but those are very limited. And when, as I've said before, we haven't added a square foot to this building since 1986, we need to do something and we want to make room and we want to invite other people to be part of the family of Jesus. When we can celebrate two weeks ago, 124 people giving their lives to faith in Christ, it's worth celebrating, but let's make room for them. Amen. So... 
just simply said, pray with me along this journey and invite the Holy Spirit to challenge you just like my wife and I are having conversations. What does it look like for us on this journey to do whatever the Holy Spirit would ask us to do. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to hear to the message and you're like, good riddance. All right, Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for all that you would do in each of us to, to, to move along this journey. And while on one hand, I can sit here and go, I have no idea, God, and I don't get it. And, and this math doesn't make sense and all that. On one hand, we want to be responsible, bring costs down, connect with different individuals that are doing certain things in business to help us keep the cost down. But God, there's still this discrepancy we're trying to figure out. And we pray for your spirit to work in all of us. I believe that Together, this is doable, but it's going to take miracles. And we pray that you would perform every one of those. God, have your way. Help us listen to you. We want to make room. We love reaching out and building bridges into our community that people can join your family. And part of it is us as a Grove Church doing that. Help us to walk this out under the umbrella of your covering, your blessing. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. 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 Thank you for praying about that the next bunch of weeks as we move towards May. 21st. Uh, Philippians 2 is where we're going to land. And today is part two in our series, Reclaiming Relationships. And for years, I've read John Maxwell on leadership, and maybe you've read books or you own books. And one of my favorite books from years ago that he wrote was, qual was called 20, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And in that book, he shares this story. Winston Churchill's mother dined with two of Britain's prime ministers on back-to-back -back evenings. When asked her impression of each, she said, William Gladstone, uh, of him, when I left the dining room after sitting next to Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in England. After dining with Benjamin Disraeli, she said, I left feeling that I was the cleverest woman in England. And you think about the difference for a second. And you might go, well, well, what is that about? And it has to do with this. William Gladstone was self-focused. And you can sit back and be amazed at his accolades when, on the other hand, Benjamin Disraeli was others-focused. One of my favorite authors over the last few years is Mark Batterson, and he's written a lot. But he shares a story from a mentor, Dick Foth, that says this. There are two kinds of people in this world. The first walks into a room and internally announces, here I am. The second walks into a room and internally announces, there you are. And the question I have as we jump into this is this, what kind of person are you when you walk into a room? What, what kind of value do you bring? Is it about you and people thinking that you're somebody and you have something to offer and, and you can show them that? Or is it that you want others to feel amazing about themselves? Are we self-focused or others-focused? And at the end of the day, what we're talking about is the word humility. C.S. Lewis, in talking about humility, said humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And I love that definition. And of course, in, in scripture, Paul bottom lines the conversation when you look at Philippians chapter two, and he says this, starting in verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you also to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Father, today again, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts as we talk about humility. Father, reveal to us those areas in our lives where we're not operating the way that you want. When we think about reclaiming relationships, I believe this is a huge piece of the puzzle for every single one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Now, the, the, the thing about that phrase is this. When you think about selfish ambition, you might automatically think about somebody who is boisterous and loud and self-confident and even prideful, and they don't seem to care. And when they operate that way, you look at them and you simply go, that's not me. But let me jump into these words because just like I prayed a few moments ago, there's something in all of us that can easily be guilty of this and yet write it off because we're not that person. When Paul says selfish ambition, let me jump in with a couple of words that may help you understand it. Having a sense of entitlement. Here's what I deserve. Here's what's rightfully mine. And the question becomes, what do you deserve that someone else won't let you have. Because when you operate with that question at the core, it means you're willing to make sure others feel your passive aggressive frustration, feel your anger or wrath, that you're willing to operate in a way that makes others feel lesser because somehow there's something that they have that you want or that they simply are keeping you from. Entitlement. The other idea along the same vein is what are you owed? When we talk about reclaiming relationships and through that lens, once again, a similar question, what is it that that person owes you? And that's a question sometimes that you go, well, I don't think anybody owes me anything, but stop for a second. Think about when you get annoyed with other people, frustrated with other people, when you don't get your way and it rises up something within you. There's something going on that I want you to begin to discern. My hope would be through the Holy Spirit today because while you could walk in today and in worship and Hunter talks about Psalm 139 and Lord search me and you're doing good, it's amazing how it can jump up on you tomorrow. It's amazing how you can have it nailed one day and not have it nailed the next. What is it that you think other people owe you? Anybody ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty? It's been around a long time and it's Jim Carrey, but the idea of Bruce Almighty is that, that he doesn't understand how God works, but he wishes he could be God so he could control this relationship with a significant other. And in the, in the midst of the story, and of course it's a movie, so it's kind of crazy. And of course it's Jim Carrey, so it's crazy. But within the movie, at one point he gets to be God. And one of the examples that I hope resonates with you, because I know it does with me, is at one point he's driving down the road and there's traffic everywhere. But because he's God, what does he do? Part and all of the cars pull over and he gets to go right through. If you've ever been on the road and felt like this guy needs to move over so I can get by because I gotta be somewhere, maybe just maybe subtly, your agenda is more important than theirs. Maybe just maybe what you deserve is better than what they deserve. And so we get this sense of what other people owe me. And sometimes it's our own marriage or within those that we're closely related to, our kids or you know, our parents or aunts, uncles, friends, cousins, whatever. But sometimes it's even people at a distance and the way that we subtly think or even treat them because we are entitled. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. 
But then he says this, and also do nothing out of vain conceit. And again, break down the words, but the idea of vain is vanity and conceit or, you know, being conceited. It's this idea of being cavalier with relationships, careless with relationships, careless with the words that you say, careless with the way that you treat other people. When, when Paul says vain conceit, our opinions, our judgments, the way that, that we you know, deal in relationship becomes this. We're willing to say anything and sometimes do anything without considering how others will receive it, how others will perceive it. We couldn't care less. And it's not that you and I live by the applause of others or always making everyone happy and being at their whim and bowing to everything they want. But it's this general idea that you and I refuse to consider how what I might say will affect another person, how I might treat another individual, how I could treat my kids or my wife a certain way while I might not ever treat anybody else that way. And isn't it amazing how that works? Vain conceit. It's also this idea of being a know-it-all a vanity that wants others to view us a certain way. I'm a winner. I know stuff. Isn't it incredible how when you're around somebody who's a know-it-all, not only do they apparently have a PhD in, in modern medicine and a, a doctorate degree in politics, and they understand how to buy a, a car on top of how to navigate the psychology of children on top of, and you can go into all of these different plethoras of, of, of thought and, and, and understanding, and somehow they know everything about everything. And it's especially prevalent online. Amazing how they know everything about everything. Problem is, you know that they don't. And for whatever reason, they have to flex their keyboard muscle in order to help you understand they are somebody who really gets it because you just don't. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he flips the tables. But in humility, everybody say in humility. He says, in humility, consider others above yourself. And that's a tall order in the world that we live in for me, myself, and I. But he says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. If you want to deal with selfish ambition that creeps in, if you want to deal with vain conceit that creeps in, then the solution is for you and I to operate in humility because that chases away entitlement. That chases away the me, myself, I, and mine mentality for you and I to understand humility. And like I said earlier, Paul bottom lines it in verse five. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And it's not a surprise to most of us that have been in the faith for some length of time that our example is Jesus. And then Paul gives us a description of what Jesus did. He says in verse six, who speaking of Jesus, being in the very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. When, when, when you break down what Paul is saying and he opens it with this, Jesus' positional authority is the Lord of heaven and earth. When we talk about Emmanuel, God in the flesh, this is Jesus. If you might remember in the Gospels, there's a point where the disciples are doing ministry and, and things are going on with Jesus and they're teaching stuff. And at one point, a crowd doesn't appreciate who Jesus is. And anybody remember James and John and what they asked Jesus? They were the, the sons of thunder and they said, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Why would they ask that? Because there was something in them that believed Jesus could. Jesus had the power to do that. Do you remember when Jesus is on trial and he's arrested and they're gonna beat him and flog him and crucify him? And at one point, Jesus is told, don't you, have, don't you realize I have the power to set you free? And what did Jesus respond with? Don't you realize I could call down legions of angels from heaven and get out of this? Jesus had the positional authority for people to bow in worship, and they did. But Jesus wasn't trying to leverage his personal authority for his own gain. He had the authority to do these things, but he leveraged it for the sake of others. How about you and I? How about how we operate? Gotta be at the front of the line. As, as kids, it's called shotgun, right? You get in the car, shotgun. It means you get to sit up front. I don't hear any kids yelling, back seat. Well, maybe some, but that's another conversation. That sounded worse than I meant it, and I didn't mean it. Let's, we're, gonna, we're just going to skate right on past that one, and, you know, holy smokes. Okay. Um, and this is the one we record, too. So those online, I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> Dang it. Where was I? What are we, where am I right Okay. Um, Jesus didn't use his positional authority for himself. He leveraged it for others. Does anybody remember what we call the Last Supper? Okay. We read it in scripture. And what is it? Jesus gathered with the disciples. It was the last meal they were going to have before he goes to the garden, is arrested, is tried, is crucified. And, and what does he say? He says, he broke the bread and he gave it to the disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance. Then he took the cup after supper. He gave it to the disciples. This is, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. This is broken for, or, or shed for you. Do this in remembrance. And we call that the Eucharist. We call that communion. And it's something we do regularly to be reminded of our anchor. Does anybody know what else happened in the upper room? Jesus took off his outer garment, knelt down at the feet of the disciples, and with a basin and rags began to wash their feet. In the old covenant, the lowest servant in the house was the foot washer, feet. And we're not talking like you had a pedicure and got the nails painted and got the little flower on the big toe and you sat next to the pool and took a picture and it was more about your legs and your feet than about the pool, but you put it out there anyways and we all went, wow, nice toes. We're not talking about those kind of feet. We're talking about the feet that somebody recently posted something about like, your feet look like, you know, the kind of thing that comes down into a lake, takes a fish and flies away. That's what your feet look like. Feet. This is what Jesus, he washed the disciples' feet. Probably some things curling, some different coloration. Feet. Because we go, oh, airbrush it. It's nice feet. It wasn't nice feet. Jesus did something in utter humility in his last moments with the disciples. And then he told them why. 
In John 13, he says, do you realize what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. There it is. An example. Well, what's an example? Something to follow. What's an example? Something to wrap your head around that you would do likewise. Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus was the example of utter humility. And he said, I walk out humility because I want to challenge you to go and do likewise. How could the relationships around you be different if you operated in humility? What relationships could be restored if you were willing to operate in humility? What bridges could be built if you operated in humility? Why would we do a series like this right now? Because there's no question that most of us in the room understand things feel more, more polarized than they've ever felt. And we're willing to write people off for all kinds of reasons that are not good reasons to write people off. Sometimes there's reasons. But oftentimes in the world that you and I live in, there, those are not justified reasons. And you can go over how people have handled the last bunch of years. And I know of people within our own church family that don't talk to each other based on the opinions people have garnered over the last few years about all kinds of things. We're playing right into the hand of the enemy. Divisiveness, pride, entitlement, judgment. Things that the enemy would love for us to latch onto because it puts us in a positional you know, space above others. And Jesus says, don't do that. He washed the disciples' feet. You have, you, well, they're my enemies. They, they run diametrically opposed to everything I stand for. You know what you should do? You should hate them. Jesus said, hate your enemies, right? Jesus said, smite those who persecute you, right? Jesus said, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, get them with your elbow. <laughs> Jesus said, the golden rule, do to others as you feel, because it feels good. Jesus said, when you gather and there's a banquet, take the highest seat you can get. Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom? Step on everybody you can to get to the top. That's what Jesus said. My hope would be there's something internal going, alarm bells. My hope would be that you understand the last three minutes is blasphemy. Because Jesus acknowledges you may have people that disagree with you, that don't like you, that, that sit in other camps, in all kinds of opinions, and again, across the board in all kinds of situations. And yet, what does he say? Fill in the blank, your enemies. Love your enemies. He didn't say smite those who persecute you. He said, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said, if somebody strikes you on your cheek, turn to them the other one also. And you're like, what, just invite beatings? And that's, again, you got to understand what Jesus is saying, but he's basically saying this, refrain 
from retaliating when insulted or personally attacked. How you doing? Jesus said, and we call it the golden rule, do to others as you would want them to do unto you. And we've said before, there's even a platinum rule, do to others as Jesus has done for you. Any of this ring a bell? He mentions as he watches people gather for a meal, a banquet being held by somebody in positional authority, and he watched people clamor for all the seats nearest the person in charge, nearest the, 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 the power. They got to get on his right and his left and get this seat, and maybe he'll know me, and I'll be somebody, and he'll appoint me to some position, and I'll have the power he has. And Jesus watched it happen, and what did he say? When you're invited to a banquet, and there's somebody there with positional authority, do not clamor for those seats. Sit over here at the end in the position of lowest authority. And he says, what happens when you do that is that the, the, the master of the banquet would go, hey, you don't belong way down there, come on. And you get to be exalted. But if you get clamor for these seats right next to the guy in charge, and he's like, oh, those are safe for somebody else, move on down. That's not going to feel so good. You want to be great? Jesus said to his disciples as they're arguing about who was going to be great. You want to be great? Serve. You want to be great? Get great at humility. You want to be great? Don't try to be the first in line for the meal. Don't be the last in line to help clean up the kitchen. Don't figure everyone else opens the doors for you and you just wait to walk in. Don't think for a second everybody should get out of your way so you can have what you want when you want it. Humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others above yourselves. In a series called Reclaiming Relationships, when you talk about you and I walking out humility, here's a little bit of what it looks like in the day and age we live in. That we would be willing to revisit a situation to consider that maybe I did make some mistakes there if there's tension in a relationship. Instead of just going, it's them. It's them. They did it. It's something about our need to make an apology and our willingness to do so rather than the stubbornness of uh, doesn't matter. It, it, it goes, like I said earlier, it refuses to let the stances of others ruin our relationship. That there is something about as adults that are challenged towards maturity, which means humility, that we can agree to disagree and yet keep the lines of communication open. It shouldn't be a novel idea. And yet look at our world. Oh, we disagree. Well, then we hate each other. We ignore each other. We slight each other behind others' backs. It's the acknowledgement when we talk about humility that we want to get better when it comes to difficult conversations that need to be had, that we want to get better at discerning the right thing and the right time and the right way and not just cavalierly coming in like a bull, charging into a conversation without really thinking some of that through. Humility. 
I mentioned Mark Batterson, again, one of my favorite authors. He wrote a book recently, and, and, and we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks as we talk about communication and words, we talk about forgiveness. But um, he, in this book, Please Sorry Thanks, he takes us back to Paul's words about Jesus and what he did. And he says this, theologians call this kenosis, Christ emptying of himself for others. And we are called to do the same. It's all about adding value to others. You can learn the subtle art of persuasion and it may help you get what you want, but all too often persuasion is abused for selfish purposes. It turns into a zero-sum game. There is a better way, the Jesus way. It's giving yourself away. It's looking out for the interests of others. And so as we end this conversation today, a couple questions. What does it look like in the world that you navigate every day? What does it look like to live others focused? I go back to that story as I open with John Maxwell and Churchill and that idea of, do you think, you know, they think I'm amazing or did I help them feel amazing? What does it look like for you to live others-focused? Is there a strained relationship that needs attention? And what can you do about it? And I know for some, and we're going to get into forgiveness in the next coming weeks, big conversation, but when we talk about this, we can go, well, they wrote me off and they won't. Well, are we doing what we can do? And I always challenge people, are you doing whatever you can do to see some level of reconciliation? We're going to talk about that. And finally, this, just a simple one. What is one thing that you can do this week to improve your marriage? To improve a friendship? To improve a relationship with a sibling or a parent or somebody at your workplace? What does it look like to improve it? Just even one degree one thing you can do to improve a relationship. Maybe it's a thank you card. Maybe it's a conversation, quality time. Talk about like the five love languages and all these options, an act of kindness, maybe a small gift that just says you acknowledge and appreciate the relationship. What does it look like for you to operate in humility, others focused? Jesus, it's a conversation today that applies to all of us that I'm not standing up here going, man, I got this nailed because right when I do, that's when it slips away. But Father, help us to walk out this humility. And I pray for some that it begins to destroy entitlement. Here's what I deserve. Here's what I should have got. Here's where I should be. But that God, as we destroy entitlement with humility, God, we want to serve. We want to live for others. We want to be focused on how to build others up and not so much our own selves. That the value of our lives is not spent in all that we can acquire, but God, what we can do to build others up around us. Help us realize that in a whole new way today. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.